I decided that art essentially is a communication. So my the basis of my work is is conceptual. Hello and welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Mikas. This is the 10th episode in the Long Run series, where I speak with artists who've had practices spanning 60 years. And this time, I'm talking with Benita Ely. Known for her sculptures, installations and performance art, Benita's work is considered groundbreaking in Australian art, particularly through her feminist and environmentally driven works. She's an often cited influence for many environmental artists, and her works have been exhibited at Documenta and collected by institutions like New York's Museum of Modern Art. Bonita grew up in the rural Victorian town of Robinvale, and she spent much time at the Murray River, the degradation of which would become a crucial topic in her art from the 1970s onwards. Her first major work relating to the river was the 1980 performance Murray River Punch, which, both humorous and important, was a highly significant work that we talk through. We also talk about Benita's upbringing, the freedom her parents gave her, how she came to performance art, the role of trauma in her work, and her idea of art as a catalyst. And before our conversation, I'd like to thank our sponsor for this series, Lenagel Auctioneers and Valuers, who are based in Melbourne and Sydney. When we were emailing each other about this interview, you mentioned to me that you'd been making artworks since you were two or three years old. And I was so curious as to what kind of artworks you were making at such a young age. Oh, yes. I seem to have a compulsion to draw uh, without having been shown how to or told to or even know that there was such a thing as drawing. One of the things I used to do was collect charcoal from the um, charcoal that mum would throw onto the asparagus bushes, actually, <laughs> uh, from, from the uh, wooden stove because we had a wooden stove. And uh, I used to draw on the outside walls of this great big tin shed that uh, had been our first residence, our our first uh, accommodation on the block. My parents uh, got a soldier settlement block in a place called Robinvale. And uh, the first accommodation actually was tents. And my mother uh, was very annoyed with me. I think I was only two years old, I um, cut grooves in her dressing table with my brother's uh, axe, not axe, saw. So, you know, I was <laughs> I was always making a mark, you know. That would have been such an interesting upbringing in terms of, I mean, I guess the relationship you went on to have towards the environment because from what I understand of that time period, I mean, your family would have been doing farming of some kind yeah. and it would have been yeah pretty tough yes um well both my mother and father were really busy you know establishing the vineyard and orange trees i think it was about three years before the the vineyard was um, productive and their parenting method I define as benign neglect because, <laughs> you know, they were so busy. There, there was no uh, opportunity to be helicopter parents. They used to just 
put me and you know my brothers and sisters outside and we'd play. So you know it was a very uh, free way of bringing up a child. And as I grew older, my adventurous childhood became even more adventurous and. It was a wonderful way to be brought up in many ways, you know. And just in terms of my interest in nature and, and my love of nature and the Murray River, the temperature in the summer at this place was often up in the 40 degrees. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So when we had the opportunity, we'd all jump on the, the tractor and trailer and go down to the river and have picnics and go for a swim to cool off. So we'd be trundling down these bush tracks and uh, I'd be lying down looking at the stars and the, the silhouette of the, the trees and so on. And there were also Aboriginal canoe trees along where we went. So I was very early introduced to the culture of the Aboriginal people. And so were you taught to value the environment at a young age? I think my mother and father really loved the bush and, uh, you know, they were a great, great example to me, but also they exposed me to it. You know, we used to go mushrooming in the bush. My mother told me I was the best mushroomer because I was closest to the ground. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Dad used to go fishing. And the place that we mainly went to, everyone called it St Kilda Beach just for fun. (laughs) It was a um, a sandbar in the Murray River. And so, you know, it was safe for us kids to go in and learn how to swim there. But eventually you did leave there and there was a recent interview you did with Julie Ewington And you sort of said that one of the main reasons you left was that it was just such a small town and you wanted to be anonymous and that was kind of impossible where you were. (laughs) That's true. I did know about the city because we had relatives there and I had to go to, I was in a really terrible car accident when I was nine. I think it was about two years with scars on my face. So I had to go to Melbourne to get, what they did was they just very carefully cut the scar tissue out and neatly stitched the skin back together again. So I've just got these very, very fine lines where I was cut. So mum and I used to have fantastic time in the city where, you know, we'd go to the cinema, we'd go to the theatre and just exposure to the culture in the um, city was really, you know, so exciting to me. Mum loved it too. And we used to stay, you know, we were covered by insurance because of the accident. So we used to stay in um, fairly posh hotels. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you then end up deciding to go to art school? I, d- I just loved making art. And I was really good at it. I got really high marks for art high school. But I was also very interested in becoming a social worker, as uh, people were called back then, because I used to go along to the Save the Children Fund Centre in Robinvale after school and help the Aboriginal kids who went there after school. And the woman who ran the place was really lovely and she was a real role model for me. So I thought that 
that would be a great thing to do, you know. So I applied for uni and I also applied for art school and the art school started up much sooner than the um, universities back then. So I thought I'll try the art school and see how I like it and if I don't like it, I'll go to um, uni. And I really loved the art school, so I didn't, I didn't go to uni. I did the um, art course. Did you have an idea in mind of being an artist or what that kind of life was going to be like? No idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I just um, wanted to to do it, I guess. Yeah. When you started doing performance art, I mean, how accepted or common was that in the 70s or was it still extremely avant-garde at that time? It was pretty avant-garde, yeah. There weren't very many artists doing it. The first performance that I did was called Jabaluka U02. I'd been to Darwin to be artists in school, which meant doing activities with kids in the school. And I also was given the opportunity to go and do workshops with the art teachers in Aboriginal communities in Arnhem Land. And that was amazing. An Aboriginal guy who was also a teacher, he was my guide and friend. And we we went to the Ranger Mine, Uranger, Ranger Uranium Mine, and they took us on a tour. <laughs> Can you imagine? And um, I was, you know, as you, if you can imagine, I was pretty horrified. But I, I kept my cool and they showed us all around it. And the mirror people were threatened by having a mine in their country as well. And so I devised a performance where I'd, I'd build a – it was a bit like making a sculpture out in the, out in the field – with sand and these two guys way, 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 way off in the distance, they were just dots really, were drawing a straight line using a um, tennis marker. It turned out that if they were to continue their straight line, they'd go straight through my beautiful sculpture, which was a um, cone with a ochre spiral going down it and grass all around the bottom and it was based on these baskets that women in Arnhem Land made for their children, to, you know, for their babies to sleep in and for them to rest in. Anyway, the guys went straight through it. I, I tried to stop them and couldn't and when they were gone, I um, restated the, my spiral symbol over the top of their line and burnt it into the ground. So that, that was my first performance. And, you know, the origins of it was with the teachers in Arnhem Land. I got them to do performance. And then the next one was Murray River Punch. And I saw this woman in my um, department store in Melbourne doing a cooking demonstration. <laughs> And that was a really new thing. I could, could, you know, it was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And um, I was invited to do a performance or make an artwork for uh, an event called Women at Work at the George Payton and Ewing Gallery 
in Melbourne, which was the venue for contemporary art back then. You know, they were it was one of the few places that, you know, really sort of stretched people's conception of what art could be. And so I did the performance in that uh, event. I feel like that performance that you did was, I mean, that exhibition itself, I guess, is considered pretty groundbreaking now. And then your performance within that exhibition was considered really groundbreaking. And I was reading um, a review that Janine Burke wrote at the time. Mm. And, you know, as an art historian, she just seemed like she was completely blown away by the work. Mm. Could you maybe tell me or tell the listeners what the work was, because I think you'll describe it better than me, but then also what the reaction to it was like. Right. Uh, well, I got dressed up looking very smart and conservative <laughs> and had all of the ingredients for the recipe on, on this table. And the recipe was all the pollutants that uh, were going into the river at the time, and they probably still are, including salt and uh, fertilisers and rabbit dung and European carp. Anyway, you get the idea. And I just really straight-faced and very cheerful chit-chatter about the history of the river um, made this absolutely disgusting, stinking mess cooking it on a, on a gas stove so that the fumes were, you know, really strong and everyone was both laughing and groaning you know it was yeah it was great they they really got it you know and I offered it out to them at the end and no one wanted to drink any (laughs) (laughs) and I you know it being the the um 70s early 80s I had um peas on toothpicks for them to eat and (laughs) so what did you do with the mixture at the end you just tipped it outside or oh yeah I can't remember how I disposed of it but yeah I would have safely disposed of it somehow if it's a period in which not too many Australian artists are doing performance art like that where do you get the influences from to do something like that well, I guess the Fluxus movement was a strong influence on me. I saw this fantastic um, exhibition of Ed Keinholz's work in London and his work were, was, you know, breaking the barrier of the precious artwork. You could go into the work. You could, you know, it was in your space. It wasn't up on a pedestal or in a white box, you know. That was very inspiring to me. But the actual artworks themselves, ideas just pop into my head. I think I have a vivid imagination and a brain that works sort of laterally rather than, and I just make all of these connections. And it's also the work evolves by actually making the work. So in the process of making, I get ideas that enrich the initial concept. And when you are working across different mediums like performance and sculpture and installation, is it the do you let the medium kind of dictate what the work will be, or or is it the other way around that the idea dictates the medium? Oh, it's very very much um, based on uh, ideas or passions that I have, you know, rather than the mediums. Just 
in relationship to that, I did two years of art school and my parents were um, supporting me and I, I didn't feel good about that. And so I left the art school and did a year teaching. So I was in a situation where I was teaching art and I'm thinking, what is art? What am I teaching? You know, if you're teaching mathematics or you're teaching English or you're teaching science, you know what you're teaching. But with art, it's uh, it's fuzzy, you know. And for me, I decided that art essentially is a communication. So my the basis of my work is is conceptual. I'm communicating ideas, feelings. But aesthetics are the tool that you use. I know some artists don't think about a viewer or you know recipient of the artwork at all. But I guess if your if your idea of art is a form of communication, are you thinking about the viewer when you're making the work? No, I'm not. I think if you thought about the viewer, you wouldn't make original work because you'd be compromised too much trying to work out how someone else is going to perceive the work. It's very subtle, actually. I I just make it so that it is powerful for me and I assume that because I'm a human being and my viewers are homo sapiens also, there'll be something there that they'll possibly tap into and often I actually find that people see things in my work that I uh, didn't realise were there. You know, people surprise me. So, so in other, in other words, my work is a catalyst. A catalyst for what? For interpretation, for ideas, for feelings, you know. Like one of the works that I put in documented interior decoration was addressing the intergenerational effects of post-traumatic stress disorder because, and it originated because my father, I'm absolutely 100% positive, suffered from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, he had all of the symptoms. Yeah, and he was in the Second World War, wasn't he? That's correct, yes. And he was a machine gunner and he was behind the machine gun and he was the last person you could imagine killing people. He was a humanitarian. He was, you know, very kind and open to everybody. He didn't seem to have a prejudice bone in his body and later in his in his um, old age, age 92, we, we had a conversation and he was crying and he was calling the Japanese the poor bastards. So, you know, even at that age, he still hadn't fully recovered from the trauma. Anyway, the work that I made, it was like a, taking people back to their childhood in a way, yeah. In, in what way? Well, the trench that I made was made from my parents' bedroom furniture. So the, the wardrobes and mum's dressing table, dad's uh, labour that he kept his shoes in, were all disassembled, turned inside out and made into a, a trench. And it was a child-sized trench. And when you, when you looked into it, your body could sort of feel that you could you could enter into it even though it was so small 
and the machine gun was made very accurately using my mother's Singer sewing machine and bobby pins. So there's this weird tension between what you're looking at, a machine gun, and the materials that it's made out of. It's kind of this uncanny feeling that the war has been feminized, has been domesticated, but at the same time, the domestic feminine world has been militarized. So it's this weird kind of mix. That idea of trauma, it informs a lot of your work, whether that's ecological or political or like in that work, more intergenerational. Why do you think you find trauma such an interesting or I guess pivotal place to start from? Well, I guess my very, very strong feelings for nature and the destruction that we've wrought on our fabulous nature in Australia really upsets me, you know. I want to make the issues really clear, resounding, and I want to take people out into the landscape to see what's going on. All the Murray River work is about taking people out there. Not everybody can drop everything, jump in the car and drive along the Murray River for, you know, a couple of months. So I'm taking them there so they can see how beautiful the river, how majestic it is, how extraordinary, but at the same time, what destruction we're we're imposing onto the river. That, I guess that that is the trauma of the landscape rather than, and I'm pretty sure I was traumatised by my father's behaviour towards us kids and towards my mother. When I was a child, it was pretty full on a lot of the time and totally unexpected. You didn't, there was no warning. You'd be just in this really horrible um, uh, situation where the father that you loved so much was just turning into an absolute monster, you know. So all of these experiences that I had as a child, I think, sensitised me to the anguish, the pain, the destruction that that human beings experience and and inflict on each other. Yeah. No, it's it's pretty horrific. And and just, you know, even those two examples, like one of environmental trauma and another, which is, is pretty much, you know, I guess the trauma of domestic violence, I feel like they're things that are only getting talked about in, you know, mainstream culture, maybe in the last four or five years, if that, probably Mm. even more recently for things like domestic violence. What did it, I mean, if you've been exploring these things for 30, 40, you know, more years, 50, 60 years, did it feel like you were out of step or ahead of what were the main concerns of the time? Um, Hmm. Yeah, good question. I guess I was doing what I do, you know. In retrospect, I I realised that I was sort of anticipating what would become even more horrible so that people would would be forced to be aware and try and do something about it all. You're also involved in the late 70s feminist movement in Australia. Yeah. What was that period like? Oh, it was very exciting, actually. I, I um, mentioned before the George Payton and Ewing Gallery at Melbourne University is the um, the sort of epicentre of contemporary art at the time in Melbourne. 
I, with um, a friend, we, we got money from the education department to research women artists and set up facilities in one of the big libraries in Melbourne. And uh, so we interviewed artists, women artists, documented their work, transcribed the interviews and put together kits that could be sent out to schools. And we also researched the historic aspects of women's art in Australia. For instance, Margaret Preston. She wrote a huge amount of material about not just her own work, but, uh, you know, contemporary art in Australia in Art and Australia magazine. And she was amazing. She was a great inspiration to me, actually. I thought she was incredible. But, you know, people, women like um, Mercamora, we interviewed and took photographs of the work and so on. So that that was um, a source of money for me too. You know, I, I could live off the project. I also started teaching back then. I had opportunities to do workshops with the art schools and finally got a job teaching sculpture at Paran. So, you know, it was a very dynamic time for me. Was there a moment when you found feminism? Oh, look, I think I was brought up by a feminist, actually, but she would never have thought to call herself a feminist. My mother was so smart, so enterprising, so creative and so funny. You know, she was great. And, you know, she she started up her own business on the block. She sold fresh fruit to Melbourne and Sydney farmers markets, as they'd probably be called now, and made a lot of money and, you know, we had a new car because of her and, you know, she was very active in the community as well, uh, raising funds for um, a hospital in the town. My father was also very much engaged in community activities. So, you know, they were both really amazing people and neither of them ever told me what to do. They never stopped me from doing what I wanted to do. They were incredible parents, really. Yeah, it sounds really wonderful. Yeah. When you, I guess, were studying art or sort of in those first few decades of your career, did it feel like you were sidelined as a female artist? Um, hmm. Well, I suppose I was more interested in making art. It was all about the art for me. So, And people kind of, I think I was lucky a lot of times. People saw what I was doing and, and invited me to show in exhibitions. Yeah, it, t- it took a while to, to get a commercial gallery. It happened in the late 80s. I was in an exhibition in the Institute of Modern Art in in Brisbane and a guy called Peter Ballas saw my work and he was planning to start up a commercial gallery and he called me up and asked me if I'd like to show with him and I said yes. (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, Josh Milani, he inherited Peter Ballas's gallery when Peter decided to retire and I'm still with them, you know. It's interesting to me because I interviewed Janet Lawrence maybe a year ago and she, because, I mean, you know, her, her work deals with nature quite a lot, and she was talking about, she referenced you as an influence and she said that one of the things that 
she liked most about your work was that you were a, f- a female artist making art rather than like a female artist making female art. Mm. And I thought that was a pretty good distinction. Yeah, that is actually. I've never thought of it that way. Um, but certainly, uh, I guess I'm extraordinarily independent. Like, for instance, I never get lonely. I don't know what it feels like to be lonely. And I hate it when people tell me what to do, which is possibly a character fault. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, as I say, it's it's always been about art rather than being about making money or being famous or whatever. I just really loved making art. You know, I've never been into self-promotion, really. Haven't got the time for it. I'm too busy in the studio. That's good. I think it's the way it probably should be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also, you know, another great influence or event or whatever you'd like to call it in my life was having a child. I've made a lot of work about women's role as mothers. I, I just think, you know, this whole myth about the Virgin Mary, hello, you know, women's ability to reproduce the species is pretty bloody amazing. I mean, I guess that sense of care for a child or for nurturing also does extend in many ways to the environment. And I think you can you can kind of see that crossover in a lot of your work. When it has been so many decades of that and you think about the current climate of feminism but also the really severe ongoing environmental degradation, Yeah, how are you feeling about what's happening right now? Hmm. I'm, I'm really worried and I'm just hoping – Governments will pull pull their fingers out, that people will pull their fingers out and and make action, really urgent action, to turn things around, you know. I've I've always been fascinated by animist culture, not just the Australian Aboriginal culture, but um, cultures all across the, the globe were animist and we've lost that intimate connection to nature that kept nature safe for so long from the crazy humans, you know. When you have an art practice spanning 60 years and you reflect back, do you feel that the lines of inquiry, have they remained the same over time or do you think they change as the decades change? I think there's there's definitely threads running through it all that make it a cohesive body of work, even though in many respects, I don't have a style, as many artists have. My my style is not to have a style. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the form that the work takes in response to the ideas, the concepts or anyway, uh, is dictated by what's required for the communication rather than me being Benita Ely with a style that, oh, that's Benita Ely's work. But I, I, th- I think, you know, over time there, there is a, a thread. Yeah. And that was Benita Ely for this 10th episode of The Long Run. You can also listen back to previous episodes with Margaret Dodd, Vivian Binns, Stellark, Mervyn Bishop, Suzanne Archer, Robert Owen, Gareth Sansom, Wendy Stavrianos and John Walsley. 
You can subscribe to the Art Guide podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And don't forget to rate the show as it helps people find us. Or otherwise, listen at Art Guide online. We can also keep up to date with art-related features and interviews from across the country.